Today's scripture reading comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 through 24. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and all the wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken, for dust you are, to dust you will return. Adam named his wife Eve because she would become the mother of all living. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, The man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden of Edom cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. We're walking through a brief uh, series um, in conjunction with the season of Lent. And as explained before, the season of Lent is a time of preparation for Easter, um, a time of um, spiritual preparation, prayer, meditation, um, just to reflect on these words of God, um, learning more about who we are uh, and what it is the gospel. Um, and the deeper we plant that, those truths in our lives, it's going to change you. It's going to transform you. Uh, so this series is going to help us to reflect and be thoughtful about why the gospel is good news. Genesis chapter 3 What does it tell you? It tells you particularly what is wrong with the world. Why is there so much evil? Why is there so much violence in the world? And St. Augustine, his answer was um, profound and yet very simple. His point was original sin. Sin. Sin is the reason. So today we're going to learn four lessons about sin. The diagnosis, the root cause, our coping mechanisms, our therapy, and the cure. Uh, the diagnosis, the root, our coping mechanisms, and the cure. First, the diagnosis. What's the problem with the world? It's sin. What is it? What is sin? And you know, it has so many dimensions and so many definitions that it's really mechanical and rote to try to explain what sin is. Anything I try to say is going to sound mechanical or preachy, but, but what is it? It's simply put, sin is man substituting himself for God. 
Um, that's as simple as you can say. What did the serpent say? Um, you don't have this in your, in your uh, bulletins, but I'm going to read Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 to 4. What did the serpent actually say to Adam and Eve? <clears throat> he said, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You know, uh, the serpent mainly, basically this is what he's saying. Stand up for yourself. Think for yourself. Create your own version of reality. That's what he's saying. Be your own person. Don't be afraid of anything. Live in authentic freedom because I can get it for you. If you listen to me, I can offer you real freedom, genuine freedom. Uh, you can be your own person as a result. So Adam and Eve, what did they do? They, they got up there and they said, you know, I'm not afraid of anything. And they took of the fruit. And what happens? They're terrified. In verse 8, it says they were afraid. They hid. Sin is the proneness of the heart to feel higher about yourself. It's, uh, it's that impulse, that sin. Um, it's at the root of everything, including murder, racism, sexism, all of our religious intolerance. At the heart of all that, at the root of all that, and it's got disastrous consequences. That's what sin is. That's the first point, very simple. The second point is what's the root cause? What's the root of all this? What's happening at the core? What is the spiritual mechanism that's behind all of our emotional and physical and psychological dysfunction? You know, if you take this uh, fine-tuned German engineer car and you open up the hood and you look into it and you see the engine and it hums. It's humming. It's purring, right? And you take a wrench or a rock and you throw it right into the core of that engine. What happens? All of a sudden you hear, beyond all the noises, um, you know now that where there was once integration, there is now disintegration. Where everything was once incredibly coherent, Now there's incoherence. Sin, that's what sin is. It affects everything, the totality of the person, and it affects everyone and everything around you. Um, And I'd love to go into the consequences um, of sin and because in chapter 3, especially if you look at the curse itself, verses 14 through 19, there's this tremendous emphasis on the curse itself, and I'd love to go into that, but today we're going to go into the root cause of all this. I want to appeal to the heart. Here's God. He's walking in the garden. He's walking with Adam and Eve. You know, God, God, it's, it, walking in the, is an idiom in the Old Testament. It really means connection, relationship. And so in the cool of the day, the great context for a relationship, here's God desiring relationship, but yet something has changed. Something has altered. Whereas God desired relationship, Adam and Eve are now hiding from him. Where God wants to open himself, reveal himself to his people, now Adam and Eve are closing themselves. And as a result, sin, at the core, you see one of the major consequences is alienation. From the start, there's alienation from God. Now, what's the root? And you see this as God asks Adam these questions. God asks Adam, where are you? Verse 9, where are you? Uh, In other words, why are you hiding? And Adam's response is this. He says, I was naked. He actually says, I was afraid I was afraid because I was naked. In other words, I was, I was ashamed because, of, I, I, because I'm naked. 
And, and what he's saying here, is, you know, he's saying, I'm not ashamed because I became naked. You know, it's not like he, he ate of the fruit and all of a sudden all the clothes got stripped away from him. Um, what happened was he takes of the fruit and he realized he was naked. They were always naked. Now there's a new consciousness of his nakedness. Now there's a, a, a new awareness of his nakedness. And God is saying, where did that new consciousness come from? Who, has, who told you that you were naked? What has changed? Because nakedness originally simply meant, you know, you are known. To be naked is to be known. You see that throughout the Old Testament. To be naked is to be known. What has changed, Adam? Before, you know, before Adam and Eve wanted to be their own masters, they had no problem with being naked. They had no problem with radical vulnerability. And now suddenly they've become aware of their vulnerability, that they're seen by somebody, that they're observed by somebody, that they're made visible, that they've become open, and as a result, it's become traumatic for them. That openness, that uncovering has become traumatic for them. In the Bible, nakedness means to be so known that you're vulnerable. It results in fear. It results in shame. Now, um, it's more than just about clothing, right? Um, I heard it this way. If you're walking along with somebody on the, along the road, you know, you're walking down the road with somebody, and suddenly you hear a shot, and someone says, get cover. What do you do? You duck, and you start looking around, right? That's what you do. Why? All of a sudden, there's a sense of fear. You don't even know why, but the sense of fear sets in because you know that at this moment, At that very moment, somebody out there sees you that you can't see. Somebody with their two eyes sees you in a way that renders you completely vulnerable. That's why you get cover. That's why you need cover. Nakedness is that idiom for shame because it represents how vulnerable we are. Now, here's another illustration. I didn't come up with this one, but if we're all in bathing suits, you know, on the beach, you don't feel very naked, right? You're on a bathing suit, you're wearing a bathing suit, you're on the beach. You don't feel naked. Why? Because everyone's naked. But if somebody invites you over to their house for a formal dinner and everybody comes in wearing a tuxedo or a a nice evening gown, but you're in your bathing suit, all of a sudden you feel naked. Why? Why is that? I mean, you're wearing the same suit that you wore on the beach, but why is it that this time around, here in this place, you feel at this moment, you feel so much more naked and you feel very insecure. Why is that? Because that's exactly what nakedness is. It's to be all of a sudden in this situation, there are people who can see you that you can't see. You can't see through them, but they can see you. You are unable to control the information that you have about yourself to them, and it's plainly exposed. It's visible to them. Originally, there was no problem with nakedness. Nobody had any issue with nakedness. We were naked and we were unashamed. Have you ever opened yourself up to somebody in a way that you actually have to take a risk with yourself and you kind of share a little bit more deeply about yourself? And they hear what you're saying and they respond. You know, you're cringing because you're just kind of anticipating that in that split second, you're anticipating, um, you don't know what to expect actually. And they say, you know what? I admire you for what you just shared. In fact, I admire you more for having shared that just now because I know how hard it is to share that. We all, we all desperately want that. We want that. That kind of experience is to die for. We want that. We need that. You know why? It's because we're meant to be known. 
We're built to be known. We want to be known. We're meant to be naked and unashamed. Uh, but today, the essence of the human condition, and Genesis chapter 3 shows us this, the essence of the human condition is that we feel like the only way that we can be loved is if we're not known. Vulnerability has become a painful experience. And, you know, if you remember uh, the, the book Death of a Salesman, Arthur Miller, Death of a Salesman, it's a story about Willie Loman. And, um, you know, Willie Loman is respected by his son, young Biff, Biff Loman. He loves and worships his father, Willie Loman. In fact, he's the only one in the world that respects Willie Loman at all. And uh, there's, a, there's towards the end of the story, this play, Biff Loman um, goes to visit his father in Boston. You know, his father's a traveling salesman. He goes to visit his father in Boston, and he catches his father uh, in a room with another woman. And uh, he suddenly realizes that his father, this man that he worshipped, you know, as a traveling salesman, routinely cheats on his mother. That's what he realizes. And so, you know, Willie Loman is trying to make all these excuses, trying to bring his son Biff back in and, and tries to explain. And yet, there's this passage where Willie Loman sees Biff staring into his eyes right through his heart. He sees right through the facade. He goes right into the heart. He pierces him, and he sees Willie for everything that he is, that he's got no principles, that he's a man of no values, And this is the reason why all of us are afraid of being exposed. We were originally built to be known and loved, but we believe we can never be both together. We we can never be known and loved. And so we try to hide, we try to control the information that people know about us so that we can be loved. Now we want to be known and we want to be loved at the same time. We want both at the same time. But we feel like the, the best we can do is to be loved. You know, because if someone really exposes us, if someone really looks at the bottom of our hearts and sees that we don't live by principle, like Willie Loman, we don't have values, we don't live by our principles, we don't even live by our own standards, we don't want people to see just how anxious we are, how depressed we are, how unhappy we are at times, how depressed or disappointed, angry or weak we are. That concept of the first date, what do you do on your first date? There are more frauds and liars created on a first date than in any other experience in the human condition, I'm convinced. Why? Because you so much want to control the information about yourself because you want to be loved. That's what it is. Opening yourself up is supernatural, guys. It's supernatural. It's not a natural experience. Um, you're saying, you know, I may get exploited. I may get taken for granted. You know, I don't want to come, you know, you don't want to get covered up anymore. You don't, you want to expose yourself. You want to reveal yourself without getting exposed, uh, without getting exploited. But to be able to open up, what you're saying is I can get weak in front of you. Folks, this is what our community groups are supposed to be about. This is what community group, that experience, that intimacy, that's what it's supposed to be about. Um, that's the essence of true, real relationships, you know. But the root cause is really that our nakedness, our need to be known and loved, that is our pursuit. We're so desperate for that. Um, but we don't feel that we can get that. Now, the third, the third point is, how do you deal with this? How do you deal with our nakedness? How do you deal with our shame? How do you deal, um, what is our coping mechanism with this? And Genesis 3 explains this, why we so desperately need to control what other people see about us. Jean-Paul Sartre, in his a seminal piece of work called Being and Nothingness, um, he writes, he tells a story 
you know, about a keyhole. And I'm going to kind of explain this in a very practical way. Imagine yourself, imagine a man looking through a keyhole. And right through a keyhole, lo and before, before him, he sees this naked woman, this woman who's undressing. And uh, Sartre explains the power that you have when you're looking through a keyhole and seeing uh, that this person does not see you um, and yet is completely exposed. So you're able to see all that person's flaws, all the things that make her beautiful and yet all the things that are flawed about her. There's such a sense of power there, such a sense of control because you know something and they can't see you. And all of a sudden Sartre says, this incredible fear grips you. Why? Because behind you, in your own nakedness is another keyhole. That's Sartre's experience of what it means to you know, being and nothingness. That's, what he's, that's his experience there. That's his explanation of the human condition, that everything we do is in that sense that we know, deep inside we know, everybody in this room knows that there are really two eyes out there somewhere looking at us, and they're pure, and they're true, and they're totally honest, and absolutely incorrigibly just and not one of us will be able to stand before them. That has to be the case. Friends, that has to be the case. You know, if there aren't two eyes out there looking at you like that, then there's no justice in the world and evil will win in the end. Evil will triumph. And if that's the case, if you believe that, then there's no reason to believe any law. There's no reason to follow any set of laws. And, and at the same time, you can't complain for any tragedy that happens in the world. You can't complain about anything that happens to you that, suffer, that makes you suffer in the world. Why? Because there are no two eyes out there. There's no sense of justice in the world. There has to be two eyes out there. And if there are, that's why we're afraid of those eyes. We're so afraid of those two eyes. That's why sin results in alienation. That's why we're alienated with ourselves. And alienated, it's because we're alienated with God. As a result, what do we do? Genesis 3, verse 8, we hide. Verses 12 to 13, we blame other people. We blame, we're constantly stepping over other people. We're constantly trying to control what other people think of us, the information that people have about us. You know, and as a result, we're alienated with one another, even before, actually, we became alienated with God, in a sense. Think about this. Why are there so many religious people out there who are so unpleasant and so defensive and so condescending? You know, you, you, they're so hostile. You, you, answer some, you ask some questions about God because you don't understand, and they, and they, they want to scratch your eyes out. Why is that the case? It's because um, of the primary thing here. Adam and Eve, what did they do? Verse 7. The moment they realized their shame, their nakedness, they sewed fig leaves. Now, fig leaves are... Um, there are the gaps in fig leaves. They don't last. They're insufficient means of covering you. Um, they're, they're constantly working to sow these fig leaves. And, and uh, why are so, uh, so many religious people so unpleasant? It's because they're using religion as a fig leaf to cover over. Their goodness is a fig leaf. And when you ask them questions, it threatens them. And so that's why they get hostile. That's what, it's because they're using religion as a desperate way of convincing themselves, I'm okay, I'm all right. I'm covering my nakedness with religion, with my own goodness. I'm such a good person. That's what I want you to see. So if you ask questions about me, that's why I want to scratch your eyes out. That's why they're so defensive. That's why they're so touchy. But at the same time, just as much as a religious person can be that way, our irreligious people, our irreligion does the same thing. We attack anyone who doesn't share our views, our values, our principles. We call them naive. We call them narrow-minded. That's exactly what we do. 
We make fun of them. We poke fun. We mock them. You know why? It's because you can't stand the gaze of God, those two eyes looking into your lifestyle. You can't stand the gaze of God looking into your habits, your system of beliefs. So you start to get touchy when people challenge them. When people um, go against them or ask questions, you get touchy and defensive. And you know what you use? Reason is the weapon that you use to scratch other people's eyes out. You start to ask questions, you know, well, the Bible's so contradictory. Why is it so contradictory? Why is God like that? I don't agree with what God says about me here. I don't agree with what's going on here in this passage. You know what you're doing? Your irreligion is every bit as much of a fig leaf to patch over your sense of guilt as it is for the religious. We're all using fig leaves. Whether you're religious or irreligious, one of the biggest ways, in essence, that both use fig leaves. You see this in verses 17 to 19. I'm going to read this. To Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from it you were taken. For dust you are, and to dust you will return. What's going on here? Verses 17 to 19. This is the tail end of the curse. God says, now the ground is going to be cursed because of what you did. The ground will be cursed. In other words, you can work. Before you worked, everything was fruitful. But now you can work and work and work by the sweat of your brow, and yet it will be unfruitful. It's going to produce thorns and thistles for you. You're going to get thorns. That's what you're going to get. You need fruit, but you're going to get thorns. You're going to work by the sweat of your brow all day, and it's going to just produce thorns for you. That's what he says. It's the source of why all of us pursue work, our careers, that promotion, those jobs. You know, as a a part of our worth, our self-worth is tied into our work. That's the reason we become slaves to our work. That's the curse here. He says, you're going to work and work and work. You're going to constantly try, and and you need to get to that next level. That's what you're doing. And there's going to be no fruitfulness. That's why you need to work even harder. You're going to want to. You're going to desire to. You're going to be a slave to your work. Why is it that some of us work so hard? We work so hard, even to the point of exhaustion. We say, you know, if I work really hard, I'm just going to work until I get to that next level. And then that next level comes, and then there's another level. And there's no limit to those levels. Why is it that some of us are so desperate to help the world, we can't say no to anything, we're people pleasers, you know, um, we can't turn anybody down. We're always helping, we're always serving, we're always needing to do things for other people to the point of exhaustion. Why are we like that? You're always working to get to the next level, the next promotion, the next job. We're trying to step over people to get there. Why do we do that? Verses 23 to 24, I'm going to read this. Here's the reason why. The Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's this angel that he's been placed at the Garden of Eden. He drove Adam and Eve out. Adam and Eve, they basically were driven out of paradise. You will never enter paradise again, and if you try, there will be a sword there to catch you, and you will go under the sword. And that's why we're constantly overworking ourselves. You know why? It's because we're trying to get back to the garden on our own. We're trying to get back to the garden on our own, to get that sense of the garden, that sense of paradise. We have our picture. We're working and working and working and working to get back into the garden. But the thing is, God's promise here 
was that when you do that, you were going to die doing that. You will go under the sword. We're constantly trying to get back into the garden at a time when, you know, because that's the thing that will relieve us of our shame. We need paradise. We're looking for a reversal of fortunes of sorts. Shakespeare, William Shakespeare, one of my favorite authors, he was keenly aware we can't just cover sin up. It's futile to do that. It's in that great place, one of my favorite books. It actually was my favorite book, uh, Hamlet, where he says, you know, Hamlet says, I can end it all, you know, but then he goes on a little further. I'm just going to read what he says. He says, I could end it all, but that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns, that puzzles the will and makes us rather bear those ills that we have than fly to others that we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all. Hamlet says, you know, I could kill myself right now. I could get rid of my own life. I could take my life. But I sense that there's more to me than just chemicals coming together. There's more to my life than just something random that's come together to form me. What he's saying is, you know, I'm afraid that if I kill myself, there are two eyes watching me. There are two eyes watching me and sees me out there. Then no matter how much you try to hide, you can't cover yourself up. You can try. You will work yourself to exhaustion. You can't hide. One day the light's going to shine ever so brightly and it's going to expose everything, any darkness, any shadow that ever existed will be exposed. And Shakespeare, uh, Hamlet says, that thought makes a coward of me. That's why I refrain. What's going to happen when the facade goes away? When the cover, sometimes the cover gets ripped off of you. What's going to happen? We can't deal with it. There is no true therapy. That's the answer. There are many coping mechanisms but there is no true therapy that we can come up with on our own. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal? Here's the last point. What's the cure? <clears throat> Look at the mercy of God here in this text. It's not that hidden. You know, first, he doesn't destroy Adam and Eve. He doesn't get rid of Adam and Eve. That's what he promised. He said, you will die. But he doesn't kill them. He doesn't destroy them. He counsels them. He asks them three questions. Actually, he asks them four questions, but it's really three questions. He says, where are you? He says, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from this tree that I told you not to eat from? What is this you have done? Those are his four questions. It's really three questions, three main questions. And it's not like God's asking Adam because he doesn't know the answer. It's not like he doesn't know the answer. So why is he asking? He wants Adam to know. He wants Adam to think. He wants Adam to own his answers. He wants Adam to come to the reality and the truth that God already knows about himself and about God, to come to a greater understanding of God now. That's what he wants. He's counseling him. He's such a, you ever go to a good counselor? You ever go to a gracious counselor? They know the answer. They know your di- the diagnosis. They know the issue, but the thing is they want you to put it all together because as you come and put the pieces together and as they lead you, you know, you come to revelations about yourself and about God that you didn't have before. That'll transform you. God wants you to be shaped. He wants you to own your answers so you could be shaped because those answers will save you. That's what he's doing with Adam. Notice he doesn't ask Satan the devil, the serpent. He doesn't ask the serpent any questions. He curses the serpent. 
He speaks to the serpent, but he doesn't ask him any questions. He just asks questions to the people he loves. Now, the second thing he does is he makes garments for them. He actually makes them clothes. Towards the end of this text, they had fig leaves. The fig leaves weren't good enough. But what does God do? God says, I am going to be the God that covers your sins. And you see this theme running all the way through the Bible, this concept of nakedness and clothing. And, uh, you know, you remember the book of Hosea? In the book of Hosea, it's a very small book in the Old Testament. Hosea um, has a wife, Gomer, who is a prostitute. So even though they're married, Gomer is constantly cheating on her husband. And Hosea is wrestling with why God put this prostitute. He says, I'm a prophet. I'm a, I do your work, and yet you give me this prostitute that breaks my heart all the time. And God is obviously trying to teach Hosea lessons about our relationship with God on one hand, but really what he does is, towards the tail end of this kind of narrative, Hosea buys Gomer. Gomer is sold into slavery, and she is naked before the people. And Hosea claims her back. He buys her back, and he clothes her. That's what he does. Um, In spite of what she has done to him, he basically buys her back at a great cost. She's an adulterer. She's a prostitute. Now, he covers her up, and what does he do? In covering up, he restores her dignity because she's naked. She's mockable. And yet, Hosea covers her up, restores her dignity. This prostitute, this adulterer, his wife. And yet, refraining from anger, he restores her dignity. That's what God, God says, I am that kind of a God. I am going to clothe you. Your clothing, it's, it's so frail. It's going to blow away. These are fig leaves. You, gotta work to, you do all this work to sew, to put this elaborate piece of clothing together. It's not going to keep you warm. It's not going to protect you. This is a harsh world. In sin, it's broken. He says, I'm going to be the one to clothe you. And uh, he says, that's how I'm going to treat you. I'm going to be the one to restore your dignity. And and what he says to Adam and Eve, he says, I want you to come out from behind this tree. The only way that you're going to get over your fear, the only way that you're going to uh, get over the trauma that's happened to your soul is if you are naked and unashamed, if I restore that. So come out from behind the tree. Open yourself up to me. That's what he says. You know, you're lost, you're hiding, you're naked, you're a slave, you're working. I'm going to buy you back. I'm going to get you back. How do you know that? How is this done? How does God clothe us? How does God cover over our sins? How does God cover over our nakedness in a way that we will not be ashamed? Um, He gives them new garments. And the new garments are made of skin, which implies that blood has to be spilled. Animals have to be sacrificed so, these, uh, so that Adam and Eve could be clothed. Paul, the Apostle Paul, in Romans chapter 4, verse 7, it's written in your word of encouragement. He talks about what it means to receive Jesus as Savior. That's basically what he means. Uh, he explains here. And basically what he says is, blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. The Lord never counts against him. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute guilt, impute sin. Do you know what the word impute means? Impute, it's, a, it's an accounting word. If you're uh, in college, if you're an accounting major, finance manager, risk management major, um, you're going to understand this, you're going to get this. It means to transfer. It means to charge somebody else with the debt. It's a transferring of accounts. It's an accounting term in the Old Testament. And what he's basically saying is that, you know, imagine this. Uh, you know, you're at the Barclay Prime restaurant in Philadelphia. Beautiful steak place. 
marble floors. These, these kind of nouveau riche couches are set up for you. And you sit down not on these chairs but on this couch. It's this feeling of elegance. And the waiter comes by and he offers you a knife that was handcrafted by the makers of Portia. And you take this knife and you're cutting into the most delicious steak, juicy, red, medium rare, and there's a side of this beautiful, this great horseradish. These nice sauces that you could dip into and eat. And you're, with your friend, you're eating, and then the waiter comes by and drops off the bill, and your eyes are about to pop out. And your friend says, no, 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 no. Charge it to me. I will pay the debt. That's the terminology here. That's what it means to impute. God says, charge it to me. It's the way God covers over our sin without forgetting the dead. You can't forget the dead. The dead of sin is impossible to forget. Has everyone ever wronged you in the past in a deep way? Like to the point where you're, you know, you spend days not being able to let it go. It's painful and it's hurtful. Their apology, a simple apology is not enough for that. Some of us, because of things that have been done to them, are in pain for years. An apology is not enough for that. Somebody has to pay the price for that debt. God says, that's why I can't just say, oh, we'll just let it go. The pain is too deep. It's too deep. It's got to be charged to somebody. And in counting, you can't just erase a debt. That's illegal. It's got to be moved. It's got to be taken care of. And here, he says, somebody has to pay. I will pay. God charges Jesus. He imputes sin. That's what it means to impute sin. Here's the curse. The curse is you're going to work and there will be thorns. But here's the promise. In verses 14 to 15, the one time that God speaks to the serpent, this is what he says. He says, one day, a family member of this family, Adam and Eve, will come. A descendant will come, a son. And he's going to come and he's going to go after you the snake, and he's going to stomp on you, you know, and uh, he's, he's going to crush your head, and he's going to save his family as a result, but you're going to bite him, and all your venom is going to go into him instead, and he's going to die. One day, a descendant of Adam and Eve, a child will come. The child of, of Eve will come. And he will come and he will destroy sin and he will destroy death once and for all. And then God drives Adam and Eve out and he places his sword in front of the garden and he says, anybody who tries to get back into the garden on his own, if you try to get paradise on your own, whatever version of that paradise is, you will go under the sword. You will die. The curse will get you, will end you. On the cross, what do you see? Jesus on the cross and he's naked. He's been stripped naked. And uh, he's taking on shame. And he's working. He's groaning. He's writhing around. He's sweating. He's laboring. He's dying. And he's got the thorns. He's wearing thorns. And, uh, you know, he's at the tree, just like Adam and Eve. He's at the tree. And he's tempted to disobey, but instead, what does he do? He goes after the serpent. He goes to stomp the head of the serpent, not through his strength, but in his weakness, in his utter weakness. He goes under the sword. He says, for my people to enter back into the garden, for my people to enter back into paradise, I have to go under the sword. I have to go under the sword. 
And on the cross, God, you know, Jesus Christ says, you know, he cries out, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In other words, what he's saying is, I have obeyed perfectly, but I've been alienated completely. I've been cut off completely. Anyone who's going to lead you back to the tree of life is going to have to go under the sword. It's going to have to be cut. It's going to have to be cut off. Jesus says, I am being cut off. Why? For the penalty, for our disobedience. In the scripture, the penalty for disobedience is to be cut off. You actually get ousted out of the city. That's why Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem. You get punished outside the city. You're always cut off. In Isaiah chapter 53, verse 8, he said, there's a prophecy of Jesus. It says, Jesus Christ will be cut off from the land of the living. He will be pierced for our transgressions. That's verse 5. He will be cut off from the land of the living. That's verse 8. Jesus was pierced on the cross. He took the sword. He took the sword. He was cut off from the land of the living. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Sin is man substituting himself for God, but the gospel of God's grace is what? God substituting himself for man. Why? So that we would be covered. Jesus was stripped naked. Why? So that we could be covered by his blood. He was pierced so that we could be covered by his blood. All of our sins were charged to him. All of our sins were charged to him so that we could be covered. And as a result, we can be naked before God. You know, when you do your private confession, the reason why we have that in our time of worship and why it's renewing, you know, if we're not covered by the blood of Jesus, then you can't run to God. You would always be in shame. You would always be afraid to confess. You can't even confess in front of one another, let alone before the two eyes that are always watching and always knowing you. Yet we can be naked before God and unashamed because we're covered by the blood of Christ. That's an amazing thing. That's good news. Jesus is saying that I went through the sword for you. You are known and you are loved on the cross. I know you. That's why I'm here. And I love you. That's why I chose to come. That's why I chose to be here. I went through the sword for you. Romans 4, blessed are they whose sins are covered. You know, we're looking for that great reversal. That's the reversal of Jesus Christ. He is the reversal of our fortune. Do you see that? Do you see that we are naked before the eyes of God? And yet we can be completely accepted, completely loved, totally loved. Do you see that? You know, if somebody says to you, you know, I think I'm a Christian, you know, I'm trying to be a Christian, I, I really have to get some things out of my life before I really can be sure that I am, you know, that means you don't get it. You don't get it. Stop trying to be, you're trying to be religious. Stop trying to be religious. You're still working. You're still sowing fig leaves. Those are the fig leaves. You're still trying to work your way to get to a certain point where you think you're acceptable before God. But what's God's promise? I will clothe you. I will cover you. I will wrap you in a robe of righteousness. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. Let's pray.